This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode, but now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin, the weekly roundup edition. Today, I'm joined by special guest, my colleague, Hollywood, Jack Farley. Jack, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mike. I, I always love it. Yeah. Um, guys, no Silver Fox for you this week. Uh, Mark is on vacation with his family in Europe. I think we'll allow him to miss uh, an episode here or there. So uh, I'm standing here with a very capable uh, Jack. Um, Jack, uh, we've got uh, 30 minutes today, so we're going to do a super lightning round, basically, of everything that's going on in macro and crypto. I think we can get that done in 30 minutes. Uh, tall tale, but I think we're up for it. Um, you've got this slide pulled up here. Are, are we already in a recession? Uh, walk me through what we're looking at here. Yeah, so if you had asked me that a week ago, I would have uh, laughed and said, of course not. Uh, of course, we, it was always possible, but I had looked at like the strong commodity prices. I had looked at you know, economic data, PMIs, uh, uh, personal consumption, ex- expenditure, and concluded that, yeah, we were in kind of a stagflationary environment, but definitely not a recessionary one. You know, the mm. winds of recession may have been on in like early 2023, but we definitely were not, not definitely, but like we were probably were not likely uh, in one now. But that's changed, and uh, two things have happened. One is just the incredible speed with which commodity prices, oil, natural gas, but in particular like base industrial metals like like copper, uh, tin, aluminum, have collapsed. Uh, We've got this great chart here. I actually think I got it from Alfonso Pecatiello on Twitter that shows the uh, commodities that are down from their 52-week high. So you know things like nickel and steel are 40, 50 percent down, which is which is quite remarkable. Interestingly, on the oil, uh, at least on oil, not natural gas, most of that is the oil stocks are down more than the actual commodity itself, which is which is interesting. But that's the number one. Uh, correspondingly, inflation break-evens, the sort of market, what the market is pricing in for forward inflation, uh, which is derived from a, a Treasury inflation-protected security uh, yield. They have fallen sharply as well. So if we go to this chart, uh, you can see that you know the, f- the five-year uh, inflation break-even rate has fallen from you know about three and a half percent to two and a half percent. So basically, a hundred basis point uh, fall in a matter of a few months, and falling from three percent to. 2.6% uh, in, in just a few weeks. So that's, you know, obviously during a recession, inflation falls. So that's, you know, the market, uh, two things in the market are, are sort of hinting at maybe something could be going on here. But then what really struck me, honestly, is uh, yesterday's reading from the Atlanta Fed, which is that mm. they're projecting a negative 1%, uh, 1% contraction in real GDP for, for the next quarter. And that is quite extreme. I actually think that's the most negative reading in the history of the uh, Atlanta Fed, with the, of course, huge exception of uh, February, March, and April 2020, uh, when the economy. Uh, so basically, this is annualized growth. This is annualized quarter over quarter annualized growth adjusted for inflation, so real. And yeah, uh, you know, if this is true, that would mean that we would have two consecutive quarters of GDP, real GDP contraction, which is kind of the textbook definition of a recession. So uh, I would say maybe. A week ago, I would have said no way. Now I'm saying maybe. Yeah. Well, what I, what I would say is, uh, I mean, it looks like the Fed, uh, you know, we've, I know you uh, talk a lot about this on forward guidance as well, but the Fed, it's very popular to say right now they can't print wheat, they can't print gasoline. Those are supply side issues. But what they can, maybe what they do maybe have some control over is the demand side of the equation. And it looks like they're trying to really crush demand to, to rein in inflation. You know, one question that I have for you, Jack, is, you know, we've talked a lot um, 
kind of on the, the upswing of inflation, right? And the Fed trying to support asset prices about the wealth effect, right? Which is that as the, the price of financial asset goes up, people feel wealthier, they spend more, and that drives growth and inflation, right? How does that work in reverse, right? If the Fed crushes demand, if they get the prices of financial assets to fall, do we start seeing the wealth effects start to work in the reverse? And if so, how long does it take for that to become a reality? I have immense amount of faith in the uh, the Fed's ability to control financial markets, in particular interest rates. I think like the Federal Reserve had, I would say, a complete control over the fr the front interest front interest rate, not complete control. But I think once you s talk about the Federal Reserve's impact on the economy, that's when it gets a lot more dicey. You know, the Federal Reserve mm -hmm. did a ton of quantitative easing over the past fourteen years, and the the growth that we saw in asset markets was very good. But you know, how much actual inflation and growth it made in the real economy is is, is kind of uh, less impressive. So I would say that a, a lot of this slowdown that we're seeing in the real economy, I would say would have happened uh, anyway, because in, you know the inflation is actually deflationary because it, it destroys demand. That argument, I think, uh, was not accurate for many, many months, but I think it's, it kind of is going into play. So I don't know to what degree I would attribute uh, the, the slowdown of the reverse wealth effect of people feeling less wealthy, but it certainly played a role. I mean, walk me through then why you think we're seeing such a drastic decrease in the price of commodities, right? Like these are markets uh, that typically trade independently of what's going on from a monetary standpoint with what's going on in the Fed. So why are we seeing this kind of drastic reduction, uh, both in terms of the commodity prices? And I mean, this is a pretty amazing contraction, right, in terms of GDP. Uh, if you've been tracking the Atlanta Fed's projections, right, over the course of the last like six or nine months, We've shown that chart a bunch of times on, on the margin. I mean, they were initially predicting, you know, an, an immense amount of growth, right? And it's kind of as we've gone on through time, it's like, oh, maybe a little less growth, maybe a little less. And now we've seen a 1% contraction. So if it's not, you know, uh, you know, monetary policy and rising interest rates, like what's driving, you know, the decrease in um, commodity prices? And then I want to get your, your, your thoughts on uh, the bond market here. I know you've got some charts. So the forecast of the Atlanta Fed it gets more accurate over time. So mm. the forecast of negative 1% real GDP is forecasting what will be released, I believe, on September 29th, which is something like in, in 90 days from now. And this the, the error function for the GDP, it gets more uh, accurate the closer you get to the date. So like 10 days away, the, it, you know, it will do 80, points, 80 basis points will be the average error. But now it's like close to two and a half basis points. So that means that like the... Uh, you know, there's a decent chance it will be between either 1.5% of real GDP growth or 3.5% of real GDP, GDP contraction, which would obviously um, be be a disaster. Uh, I, I think that to the point of commodity prices, I, I think that the, there's a saying that you know, the cure for high prices is high prices. And when it comes to yeah. oil and natural gas and a handful of other commodities, it takes a really long time, you know, to, to put put on a new copper mine. It takes like you know many many years. But in the case of cotton or wheat or soybeans or corn, I mean, you know, it literally, you know, as they say about lumber, like it literally grows on trees. You know, so <laughs> uh, I think the commodity prices coming down makes a lot of sense. You're gonna kill at restaurants when you become a dad, Jack, because that was uh, that was an, <laughs> that was an absolutely a plus uh, dad joke. Um, I, uh, I I hear you. Um, and actually, if you look at the you know the CRB right, which is this kind of index for industrial use commodities, I mean, I mean, it kind of goes like 
this over periods of time, right? There are these spikes and then and then dips. Um, so yeah, I think uh, cure for high prices is indeed high prices. Um, walk us through a little bit um, what, if anything, that you're looking at in the bond market. Um, you know, on in previous episodes of On the Margin, we've talked about actually liquidity issues that look like they're rearing their head, uh, right, in treasuries, um, which is something that we know that the Fed uh, pays a lot of attention to. I would also say that rising mortgage rates, I know that you've got a chart here, again, something that we've talked about on the show in the past, um, is probably something that we haven't really fully felt the effects of. Well, why don't we start with mortgage rates in general? Because um, I know you follow this with Eric Bismajian, but you know he's done a great job of explaining the importance of the housing market in general on the economy. Um, we've seen a, a pretty rapid increase in the price of, uh, or in the or in the rate for a 30-year mortgage, right? It's jumped from like 2.5% or something at the nadir of the pandemic. And now it's it's really rocketing up and I think right around 6%. Uh, but it doesn't seem like housing prices have really started to respond yet, unless you're looking at different data than me. So you kind of walk us through um, the, you know, the significance behind uh, the ballooning mortgage rates. And then, uh, you know, when do you expect to see housing respond? So I would say that mortgage rates is, is probably one of the most confusing things to me in like in all of finance right now, because it's like on the one hand, it's extremely personal. It's like I'm trying to buy a house and there's a mortgage broker and the bank just with the, you know supply and demand sets the loan there. But then also it's the fact that these things are pooled into giant investment trusts called mortgage backed securities, uh, you know, a lot of which hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, excuse me, is, is bought by the Federal Reserve. So. It, uh, there's a there's a mortgage rates are mortgage backed security rates is there's a risk free treasury rate so it's like comparing it to the 30 year treasury yield which obviously has gone up a lot for reasons mm-hmm. that are you know not too hard to understand but then there's a spread between mortgage backed securities and the, the treasury yield and that has widened considerably so much so that like you know the, the convexity maven Harley Bassman guy who invented the move index has said that he's very very bullish on mortgages just because that spread is so big I can't exactly tell you why though I was just reading you know through the Fed's financial stability report uh, which came out June 17th we can put a link in the description and they just said that it be- maybe because they you know they weren't buying as many or they're not buying any now and they're uh, rolling the actively rolling them off that played a role, but yeah, I don't I can't tell you exactly because the the rate at which it, you know I think I think more than anything, uh, the the rate at which mortgage rates have skyrocketed has been um, quite astounding. Now to talk about liquidity, I think that the uh, you know liquidity in general has been like poor after the great financial crisis, uh, mm-hmm. and. So dealers aren't having as many bonds, including treasuries, on their books. So it's a lot more denominated in futures. So like, if if I'm a bank and you're a, a hedge fund, you used to actually buy a 10-year treasury bond for me. But now, 10, 10-year treasury note. Now you're actually just buying a 10-year future, and it's just sort of like all you know made up, like on the computer. Um, I mean, it's all made up, obviously. But <laughs> um, I'm, I was just actually, if I can quote from the Fed's stability report from June 2017. June 17th of this year, they say liquidity conditions in the market for Treasury securities, which had already deteriorated somewhat since late 2021, uh, in part as a result of heightened interest rate risk, it has worsened in late February following Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine, and that market depth uh, for Treasury securities fell and remains at historically low levels. So yeah, Treasury liquidity isn't great. I think when they say historically low levels, they're they're you know not including March 2020, which I think that's probably the worst on record. But uh, yeah, I, I don't like nothing in nothing that I think the Fed is necessarily worried about. I think also they want Treasury yields to go up, right? So it's like the worse the Treasury market functions, and uh, the the better that is, for, you know, the the more risk premium you put people put on on Treasuries, the more yields go up, and the Fed wants yields to go up. 
Yeah, so mortgage rates are ballooning, treasuries are going up. I mean, the, you're seeing some spreads, some credit spreads widening out, which is interesting. You know, I had been saying for a long time that high yield spreads, people would say like, oh my God, the, the high yield yield to worst is at 8%. And I'm like, mm. yeah, because the risk-free rate went from like zero to three and a half percent. So again, you get those two bands of risk-free and then spread on top. But so up until, you know, a mo- two, two months ago, you weren't seeing the spread widen or you would see it widen only marginally, you were seeing the risk-free rate you know, explode higher because of the Fed and everything, inflation. Uh, now you're definitely seeing, seeing it widening. So uh, that, that is something, something to note. Um, so that's mortgages, that's, that's credit. I guess we can move into the world. Uh, first of all, do you have any questions? No, no, I think that was good. good <laughs> okay, <that>. great. <laughs> all right. Um, let's move on to the Euro-dollar curve. Oh, every, everyone loves the Euro-dollar curve. All right, this is a, a chart I got off of Twitter, which shows the forward interest rates for euro dollars, so three-month LIBOR, uh, London Interbank uh, overnight rate. And look at the yellow line and the red line. Ignore everything else. So the yellow line is of the 12th of June, and you were seeing the, the you know, this is all priced off, off the Fed. Uh, mm. Again, some people say, like, the Fed does whatever the euro, cur- euro dollar curve wants. I'm kind of in the other camp, um, especially now. But it, it was hi- it was it was pricing in uh, tons of Fed hiking up until like late 2023, when the, the Fed would get uh, higher than four percent. As of June 28th, which is only a few days ago, we're recording this on Friday, July 1st. That has moderated significantly, whereas the Fed is going to hike even faster over the next few months to let's say December 2022. Um, but it won't eat. Uh, it, it will, the, the peak rate will be somewhere in very early 2023, and then so it's basically pricing in a, a Federal Reserve pivot, uh, which is very interesting. So that, and I, I would actually fade this. I would I would say that uh, even if we get a recession, I mean even if we are already in a recession, I don't think the Fed pivots. And you know, I, I'm more in the yellow ca- category than the red category. Let me put it that way. I think um, I think I think a lot of this comes down to what the Fed decides is the appropriate rate of inflation, which I see as being higher. Right? There's actually no reason historically, like two percent is kind of a number that's plucked out of thin air, right? And actually, for a long period of time, you know, the Fed was you know almost wishing that inflation was a little bit higher than that, right? Actually, the, the problem in Japan forever is that they have not been able to get inflation uh, and you know, any, any amount of sustainable inflation. Um, it's really hard for me to imagine going back to a world where inflation is at or below that 2% range. And the reason why is I think there are some pretty big macro factors. I mean, it's all that stuff that you hear about the supply chain is completely and absolutely right, right? Um, you know, we've, we've essentially had borrowed extremely low cost, you know, we borrowed from extremely low cost labor pools in the developed world and developed economies. Um, And you can see geopolitical uh, relationships breaking down in real time. I just don't think that we'll be as comfortable maintaining as much of our supply chain in China, in Vietnam, in those sorts of countries as we have in the past. I doubt that ends up, we end up moving our manufacturing back to the United States entirely. I think that's too much of a shock. Could be Mexico or, you know, other low cost countries that are more local. But there's enormous frictions that are associated with that. There are price hikes that are associated with that. Um, and also, I think we've kind of broken, unfortunately, that mental psychological barrier that's hard to put into an equation around inflation. People have come to expect prices going up. I think it's going to be much harder for the Fed to rein things in than people thought. But at the same time, um, I just I don't think that the Fed can continue to hike rates at the, at the rate that they're going without causing serious problems. 
right? Um, we're kind of feeling this in crypto first. Uh, crypto might be, you know, for all the people doing grave dances on crypto, we we are most likely the canary in the coal mine here, right? For what is going to happen to the rest of the economy if the Fed continues on its warpath, uh, so to speak, right? Of hiking rates while at the same time, uh, you know, drawing liquidity out of the economy with QT. So I'm, you know, I, I don't know if if I would fade this or not. I, I ultimately think we probably just settle towards something that's higher sustained inflation. And the Fed says, exactly, that's what we really want. 4% inflation is actually what we want today. And then the market will just accept that But uh, over time. But I, I kind of think that's my, that's my uh, rambling vision of the future. So you're team red and I'm team yellow. Let us know in the comments yeah. what, team, what team you're on, people. Yeah, yeah, red, red, <laughs> wings. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the world's leading blockchain infrastructure platform. Blockdaemon's mission is simple. Make spinning up a node so easy a five-year-old could do it and so secure that any chief compliance officer in the world could sleep easy at night. In plain English, Blockdaemon allows anyone, whether you're a crypto-native fund, a financial institution, a DeFi protocol, whatever, to participate in crypto more safely. For some, that can mean participating in governance. It could mean gathering real-time and accurate data. It could mean generating yield through staking. Whatever it is, when it comes to crypto, infrastructure is edge, and there's simply no better edge offered than the one from Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon supports a range of services on over 50 protocols, and that's a growing list. They have multiple layers of risk mitigation that include regional and data center diversity, 24-7 human and automated monitoring, a full-service team of engineers to avoid technical difficulties, and things like slashing insurance. In other words, they literally make it foolproof. If your organization relies on real-time, accurate data that comes from blockchains, please, please, please click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out. Again, it's important. Got to click the link at the bottom. Otherwise, I won't get my credit. Uh, Jack, what else do we have here on the macro side? Because I want to make sure that we have some time to cover. It's been a very busy week in crypto as well, right? So I want to cover some of the stuff that's going on with FTX, credit contagion, etc. Um, so let's. Uh, what do you want to close out on the macro portion here? Yeah, I guess uh, put up a chart by uh, our great Will Beaumont. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, Those of you who don't know, Will literally gets the best charts in the game. <laughs> Shout out, Will. He does. Yes, he does. Okay, so this is it's very small. So on the top is the so-called TED spread, the, the TED the spread between the three-month uh, overnight index swap and three-month treasury bills. And you're seeing some stress there. We don't really have time to get into it. Um, and on the bottom, something that's, I think, easier to understand is just uh, credit default swaps on brokers. So I think like the black line is like Morgan Stanley, which owns E-Trade. So uh, yeah, so I think part of this is just like the market is is has stress. So uh, people who sell credit default swaps, like the big institutional banks, like the, the spreads just wide, widen out. But I think a lot of that people are like, hmm, is my money safe? Is my money safe? And that, Mike, because we only have 10 minutes left, is a great uh, uh, intro into crypto because, you know, you've had a lot of like lenders uh, where they're not necessarily FDIC, they're, they're, I mean, not necessarily, they're not FDNC insured. Uh, there's kind of been a run on, on the bank. So tell us, tell us what's been going in on crypto, because I've been so out of the loop. Yeah. Um, so I can give you kind of like the high level summary here. Uh, I'm going to actually steal a quote from Jim Bianco that I'm speaking with in, in 10 minutes. But uh, basically, Warren Buffett's got that quote, when the tide goes out, uh, you see who's swimming naked. And we realize that we're living in a nudist colony. <laughs> you know, uh, I think basically, uh, you know, what what ended up happening was people underestimated the the effect that crypto is correlated to uh, the interest rate cycle. I think as interest rates started to rise, um, crypto started to respond. And I think as the tide, the proverbial tide went out, 
we started to understand two things. A, just how much leverage was actually in the system when it came to crypto, and B, just how little we understood about how that leverage was connected, right? So there were a couple of pretty high profile blowups uh, that are basically we're seeing on everything unwind. Um, and they were uh, Terra Luna, right? Which really kicked everything off, Celsius and Three Arrows Capital. And honestly, of those three, it seems like Three Arrows Capital was probably the largest and the most impactful, especially for the CFI lenders, because just like the case of long-term capital management, right? when all of the banks essentially realized that they all had the same largest customer in 1998, which was LTCM, all of the CFI lenders essentially realized that their biggest customer was the same fund and it was Three Arrows Capital. And they were at, at best extremely irresponsible in terms of how they were managing risk. And at worst, there was some criminal activity that was going on. Um, so basically what you're seeing right now is, is leverage unwind. Um, and many lenders uh, took hits, uh, right? So, you know, all of this is, is public information, but, uh, you know, BlockFi is kind of teetering right on the brink. We saw you know, a pretty unbelievable article come out that was reported by CNBC that, that FTX was going to acquire BlockFi for $25 million. That has been publicly refuted by the co-founder of BlockFi, Zach Prince, uh, but, you know, we haven't gotten any more information. And, you know, this comes off the back of FTX extending a $250 million revolving line of credit with, and I'm not sure if this was, this is what I've heard. I'm not sure if this is publicly confirmed, but the rumor mill is right that, that there was some sort of convert there, right? Uh, if, if there, if repayment can be made, um, then some amount of ownership would revert. Uh, so, you know, I think, um, basically, uh, uh Sam Bankman Freed is kind of stepping in and deciding, when and where to uh, to bail out these CFI lenders because what we're seeing is just a good old-fashioned credit contraction. People don't know who they can trust. Uh, they don't know who has exposure to Three Arrows Capital or other entities that might be impacted by Three Arrows, and it's just not public yet. Uh, so nobody wants to lend to anyone. Um, and I think what Sam is trying to do, uh, I think the White Knight, you know, the, the most charitable version of that, and honestly, I think I kind of believe this, actually. I think he's literally trying to step in and shore up confidence in the space because it's a losing proposition if if everything just fails. Um, I guess, you know, the the other side of that, the other interpretation is that we don't really want someone owning, you know, walking away and owning half of, you know, the centralized uh, infrastructure in, in crypto. That's just kind of antithetical to the whole ethos of the space. So that's, you know, by and large, what's been happening in the space. Yeah, I, I think the way that those positions in long-term capital management were unwound was the Federal Reserve got everyone in a room and was like, all right, you're, you'll do this, a billion dollar swap with them. You'll assume their liabilities. You could pitch in, you know, 500 million, blah, 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 blah. And suddenly, you know, the I mean, a financial crisis was averted, at least temporarily. And I think, you know, the one thing about crypto is there's no central bank. Um, so Sam, SBF although, is kind of, yeah. Although the central bank didn't actually extend any of their own credit. They orchestrated and basically bullied and ordered the large banks at the time to all contribute money. And they they kind of quarterbacked a bailout, but they didn't actually put up any of their own capital at the time. Yes. Yes. Good point. Uh, so, so my question is, what sort of loans were made? So like, let's say BlockFi, you know, lent to three areas capital, like what kind of loan would that be? Sort of like, you know, I know what a TradFi loan looks like, but what does a crypto loan look like? You know, I it's it's hard for me to really speak directly on that because I just haven't I don't have any special information um, about what that was. What I'm what I'm assuming here, and this is the realm of speculation. If I was sitting in Sam Bankman-Fried's shoes, 
I would not just be extending credit here, right? Because the risk reward is simply not there. Um, you don't see anyone else jumping in and offering these bailouts. Actually, CZ on a live uh, a live stream with Bankless today said that he saw all of the deals that Sam Bankman-Fried saw and he passed on them, right? Uh, so that kind of tells you a little something, right? Uh, so uh, you know, if I'm him, I'm not extending these sorts of loans without some sort of equity convert clause, right? And this is what Ken Griffin over at Citadel is pretty famous for, right? Uh, he, when hedge funds are troubled and they need a lender, Ken Griffin is all too happy to extend, uh, but uh, you know, at the price of, um, you know, if you don't, if you, if I don't get paid, uh, then he assumes an enormous amount of ownership in the company, if not outright ownership. So, I, I would guess that's what's going right, on. Yeah, in- I mean, that's isn't that just a company going bankrupt? Like, if if you if you owned Hertz stock, Hertz stock of Hertz, and I I was a lender, like if they couldn't pay me back, what you own is worth zero, almost by definition, right? It's just kind of like an accelerated scenario, or it's not a bankruptcy where it's like the equity holders they don't get zero, but they get very very little. So there are kind of two types of risk that are going on right now in terms of crypto, right? There's asset liability mismatch and there's duration risk, right? Um, Without getting into the specifics of uh, asset liability mismatch, duration risk, ironically enough, is what took down long-term capital management. That's when you're basically betting on a convergence trade and you take out leverage for two securities once they've broken out of their correlated range to return. Now, the funny thing is, for long-term capital, they most likely, if they had been able to hold on to their positions, if they hadn't been as leveraged as they were, those would have been winning trades. The undercurrent thing here, what's going on, GBTC ended up being a systemic risk for crypto, right? That is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, roughly $40 billion in in assets uh, at the time. And there was an arbitrage that was like the worst kept secret in crypto that everyone knew, which is that basically what you could do, GBTC is a box. You put Bitcoin in the box, you get one share of the box, right? Careful careful with the box, careful with the box, Mike. All right, whatever. You, what, you get, it is. It's a box that trades publicly, and it's yeah. basically Bitcoin. So what you what you end up doing, and what there was so much demand, right, at one point to buy that to be able to get exposure to Bitcoin in a public way through your brokerage, that it traded at an enormous premium, right? And what you could do is accredited investors could buy shares of the box at market value, wait one year, and then redeem at whatever the market value was. Sorry, you could buy at the at par or whatever, and then redeem at the market value. So you'd basically print forty percent premium. What people didn't count on was that it would shift into a uh, instead of a premium to a discount. So again, theory is if you can hold on to that trade for long enough, you will probably made whole if you trust that Grayscale is a well-run operation, which honestly I do. But the problem is a lot of these lenders, Three Arrows, right? Three Arrows very publicly at size, they own like 6% of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. So, you know, if between now and then, uh, you know, you don't have enough liquidity to manage that, that's where you get in trouble. And Three Arrows, what they actually did too, was they took a bunch of those illiquid uh, GBTC shares and they pledged them as collateral to a bunch of these lenders, right? Uh, and so then we, when the price went down relative to Bitcoin, they had to pledge more collateral. Yeah, I, I yeah. own GBTC, so I've, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and you'll probably, it's honestly, because right now you can, I'm pretty sure it's trading at a discount of like 40%. So the implied yeah. price of Bitcoin that you can buy it is like 14 grand. That's pretty good. There's an additional layer of risk in there, right? That uh, either, you know, uh, they're not successful at converting that to an ETF or that, uh, you know, Grayscale kind of screws you, but um, yeah. 40% and, and is probably worth taking that risk. your IRA, although I guess you can now own like ET, B, B, BITO in your IRA too. So I, I bought GBTC when there was no Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. I'm an OG. I'm a crypto OG. You're an OG, baby. <laughs> Look at you, Jack. <laughs> All right, I Mike, uh, we got two minutes left before uh, you got to talk to Jim Bianco. So 
uh, play us out. What uh, what what are you looking forward to in, in the space? You know, ultimately, I think uh, I'll be honest. I mean, I think like many people, um, and I like I think it's important, right? People are happy to call out where they're right. I will call out where I was wrong. If you go back and listen to roundups like this on the margin, you know, six nine months ago, I was kind of saying I don't think because we didn't have that blow off top, the spectacular blow off top in crypto, maybe we didn't deserve the pain candle at the bottom. I was wrong about that. Clearly, we're getting the pain candle. It's much worse than I would have expected. That being said, and I'm not going to offer financial advice ever um, because crypto could continue to fall another 50, 60 percent. Who knows? I don't know. On the list of bottom signals, I mean, this is just about as good as you ever get, right? I mean, it's like grave dancing, bears celebrating in the streets, calling people criminals, uh, forced liquidations, media calling it dead. Winklevoss, I, uh, uh, Celsius is on the front ca- front page of Wall Street Journal, the physical copy. Uh, Winklevoss twins have taken out all mention of th- the Gemini in their Twitter bios, and they, they talk about the band that they're in. I mean, that's pretty close. Yeah, I think um, yeah. we're if if you know the 2018 bear market, which you know very well because you know, you founded Blockworks, uh, you and Jason in in the, the bear market. Like it only lasted a year, so we would be like halfway through the bear market, which sounds kind of bullish. Um, but then also this bull market lasted longer than the prior bull market. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And I, I don't think that we're at, in, in the bottom yet just because relatives still ask me about it. They're still like, hey, I'm pretty interested in that crypto stuff. That does not happen in, at the bottom of the bear. And people are still too angry. Like, but at the, at the bottom of 2019, it was like desolation. It was like the proverbial yeah. tumbleweed was blowing through crypto Twitter. It's like no one cared about anything, you know. Um, so I, I that's what makes me think we're, we're not, you know, totally there yet. But Again, you asked me to round it out with something, but I, so this is not financial advice. I have no idea. Um, and historically, you should probably do the opposite of whatever I do when it comes to investing. But, uh, you know, sentiment wise, I think we've got a ways to go, but we're closer to the bottom, I think, than the top, if you put a gun to my head. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for letting me be part of it. Cheers, buddy. Talk to you soon.